This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 208, Worst. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. This is the last episode of Season 4. Thank you so much for supporting this effort. I did a favorites show for Episode 100. For this milestone, I thought I would go in the other direction. This week we will discuss the worst part of my preaching, the worst book reading experience I've had recently, yet another rant against the so-called music of the current generation, and the biggest waste of time you can have with a deck of cards. We'll start with what I've been preaching. You know how preachers are accused, rightly or wrongly, of preaching at someone, singling someone out for special attention, using the pulpit as a whipping post? I try very hard not to do that. It's unfair. It's an abuse of my station. If I have frustrations with a person in the audience, I should take it up with them. Or else, and this is usually an even better approach, just let it go entirely. My frustrations and anxieties about my work are my own responsibility. Browbeating someone into making cosmetic changes so I will feel better about myself rarely achieves any short-term objectives, and it hardly ever results in long-term improvements in my listeners. It might make me feel better about myself, having done something to address the problem. But this job shouldn't be about me satisfying my own conscience. If my actions are more about me and less about saving souls, I need to find another line of work. I say all that to say this. Sometime during season four, I'll not be specific, I had reason to ask some respected colleagues about some thoughts I presented in this segment. I was afraid I'd crossed the line. Being direct about sin and God's expectations of us is one thing. Reprove and rebuke, after all, are two-thirds of Paul's definition of gospel preaching in 2 Timothy 4.2. I said things that needed to be said. True things. Relevant things. Things that would bring people closer to God and God's plan for their lives. Not because it was me who said them, or because I said them so well, but because they were and are rooted in Bible truth. But I did it with specific names and faces in mind. I wouldn't say I was preaching angrily exactly, but I'm not sure lovingly is the adverb I would choose either. I felt bad about it when I did it, and I felt worse about it when I heard it played back to me. Guilty consciences will do that. I'm thankful that this format provides a relatively easy system of accountability. I have people in my world who do what I do. Most of them, in fact, do it better. They can listen to what I have to say without the baggage I struggle with. They don't know the circumstances. They don't know names. They wouldn't know the people even if I gave them the names. They can just listen to my words and judge them on their own merits and demerits. For the record, none of them thought I was out of line. In fact, they didn't really seem to know what I was talking about. Maybe they were just telling me what I thought I wanted to hear. If so, thanks, everyone, for your gestures of support. And you were right, by the way, it was what I wanted to hear. But I don't think my colleagues are that type. I think they did their best to tell me the truth. And that is what I really wanted to hear. I have plenty of bad ideas. Most of them never make it to the drawing board, and I try not to let any of them make it all the way to the finish line. The incident to which I refer here is the best example I could remember of perhaps letting one slip through the cracks. I suppose I'll never know for sure whether I should have done it differently. All I can say is I'm doing the best I can, for myself, for you the listener, and for the greater glory of our Lord Jesus. I'm not trying to hold myself up as a model of self-examination. 
At times, I really struggle with seeing the differences between my real self and the image I'm trying to show to you and to God. Am I being sincere? Or am I being delusional? And am I capable of knowing the difference? I find a fair amount of comfort in knowing that I'm at least making an effort. Jesus has given us the gospel. James 1.23 calls it a mirror. My job is to scrutinize myself for flaws, not congratulate myself on my successes. And I encourage you to do the same. Look at the lists of deeds of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 verses 19 through 23 and judge yourself as critically as you can. Are you a jealous person or a patient person? Are you drunk or self-controlled? Are you angry or are you kind? Only by casting the beam out of your own eye can you be in position to help others with their motes. A decade or two ago, I would have congratulated myself for being direct, relevant, and even courageous for saying what I said where I said it. I'm a lot less into self-congratulations these days. Maybe what passed for love back then was really just my outburst of anger. In any event, I'm nothing but a work in progress. I appreciate my friend's help in making that work go a bit more smoothly. And if something I do can help the work that's in progress in your own heart and life, that's icing on the cake. This is what I've been reading. Let me start here by saying I enjoy music. Good music, that is. And I consider music to be a big part of our service to God and to one another, a part that's often neglected. So when I started the podcast, I wanted to do a fair number of shows on musical themes. For the better part of four years, I've been searching for music-themed board games and music-themed books. And it's been frustrating. I will say this by way of a preview of coming attractions. I've read three books about Ludwig von Beethoven this year, and I have a fourth sitting on my shelf. They might come up in conversation over the next few months. And I've found a game based on the work of Mozart, too. So I'm working it out. Last year, I stumbled across a novel by Vikram Seth. It was entitled An Equal Music. The blurb on the flyleaf looked promising. A member of a string quartet is having trouble moving on with his life after a horrible breakup with another musician. Then suddenly she re-enters his life, sparks kindle, etc., etc. It looked interesting. It looked musical. And best of all, it was deeply, deeply discounted. Hal Hammond's famous tightwad. Same song, yet another verse. I tried to read this book. I really tried. For weeks, I tried. But I was absolutely bored by it. I was about 100 pages into the book and nothing had happened. It was just one angsty 20-something frustrated that his life wasn't perfect. A person who had a very ordinary problem and sat around stressing out about it. Conversations about this, internal monologues about that, but nothing ever happened. Finally, I'd had enough. I closed the book and kept it closed. I'm a big one for finishing what I start. At least, that's what I tell myself. Whether it's reading a book, eating a steak, or binge-watching six seasons of Lost yet again, If it's worth starting, it's worth completing. But I've come to appreciate the value of quitting in certain specific circumstances. An hour of wasted time doesn't become more noble when I pile three more wasted hours on top of it. It just becomes more pathetic. It's one thing to stick with a failed plan until success is obviously impossible, or even a bit longer to make absolutely sure. It's quite another to linger in futility. It's quite another to linger in futility just so you can call yourself long-suffering. If that line is tough to draw, it's far tougher to draw the same line when evangelizing. At some point, evangelism becomes casting pearls before swine. 
You don't have to take my word for it. Take Jesus's in Matthew 7, 6. I don't believe it ever hurts to pray for a lost soul or even to bring out the gospel in his presence when the opportunity presents itself. But deliberate, concerted efforts to save people who are determined to be lost is a waste. A waste of time, a waste of energy, a waste of the gospel. Other souls need saving too. But how do we do that? How do we decide when it's time to close the book and move on? I can't answer that for you. I can't even answer it for myself. All I can do is point you to the very next thing Jesus says in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. He goes on to tell a parable about a man who loves his child enough to give him a loaf of bread instead of a rock, or a fish instead of a snake. God gives us the things we need. Why wouldn't he? Usually the preacher is quick to jump in here and point out that asking, seeking, and knocking has to do with spiritual pursuits and not fleshly, selfish ones. And that's correct. But then look back at the context. What's more of a spiritual request than wisdom? Is that not Solomon's request in 1 Kings 3.8? And did not God commend and reward Solomon for making it? James says the same thing in James 1.5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I think the principle is broader than the application we're making here, but what better application could you want? Yes, we have the gospel. Yes, we have the opportunity and obligation to share it. And yes, there are plenty of pigs out there who are unworthy. Just do what God tells you to do, accept the consequences, whatever they may be, and pray that God gives you the wherewithal to do it more effectively the next time. This is what I've been hearing. My daughter Kylie has a budding interest in musical theater. She's not a performer, mind you, but she's a fan and a bit of a connoisseur. And like all Hammondses, she likes sharing her new discoveries. We were in the car a couple of months ago, just the two of us, and she told me about a show she had recently been obsessed with. It's called Six, and it's about the wives of Henry VIII. That immediately grabbed my interest, since I am generally inclined toward history, and since Henry VIII has always been a fascinating study to me. Some of you know the background. He was desperate to conceive a viable male heir. There were other motivations too, some of which were not quite so noble, but we'll leave that aside for today. As a result, he divorced his first wife to marry Anne Boleyn. That didn't work out so well, so he had her beheaded and tried again. This process repeated itself a bit for the rest of Henry's life. Maybe you've heard the rhyme made up to help distinguish one wife from another. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. That was Henry's marriages in a nutshell. And that's six in a nutshell. Six wives of Henry VIII telling us their respective stories, arguing about which one was prettier, which one was more oppressed, which one loved their husband more. It's an interesting concept, one that should have been taken to Broadway a long time ago, in my opinion. And the libretto is very clever. Each wife has interesting things to say. Each character is fleshed out well. It's funny. It's witty. It's really quite charming. And then there's the music. Yes, let's talk about the music. Let me begin with my position on modern music in general, a position that surely I've laid out in this space before, but bears repeating now. I think modern music is, how shall I put this, terrible. It's terrible. 
It's all repeated catchphrases, hooks that look good on a list of song titles, mindless drum tracks, unimaginative orchestration, computerized and auto-tuned everything. I could go on and on. And that's what these songs do. They go on and on. It's a perfect example of the state today of music in general and musical theater in particular. There literally have been scientific studies to document how much worse music is today than it was a generation or two ago. Whatever. Long story short, Kylie loves it, and I hated it. It's worth pointing out here that I am the biggest fan of musicals in our family. I saw the Pirates of Penzance and Amadeus live on stage while I was still in high school. I think Oliver is one of the most deserving winners of the Oscar for Best Picture ever. I chose My Fair Lady as the film I wanted to watch with Tracy on our very first date. I know good musical theater when I hear it, and that is not what Six is. Six is modern pop music transported back to the 16th century, a crime that should result in the musical director being placed in the stocks, drawn and quartered, and burned at the stake, in that order. At least that's my opinion. And that's all it is, my opinion. I will continue to show Kylie a better way, or try to, for whatever reason she's still pushing back against watching Oliver with me. But if she persists in holding to her weird ideas of what constitutes good music, I'm okay with that. I really am. And I'll tell you why. Despite what implications may have drawn from the earlier diatribe, I know the difference between truth and judgment. I can live a floor beneath a fan of modern music and not go to war. I'll even give her stuff a listen from time to time. The Arcadian Wild is a band that I actually enjoy quite a bit. Check them out. Kylie exposed me to them. Circumstances could arise that would compel me to draw lines of fellowship. This is not one of them. Peace in the church works the same way. Brethren will be idiots. Brethren will blind themselves to better ways of doing things. Brethren will persist in old paths just because they're old and seek new paths just because they're new. That's not sinful. That's just problematical. And churches are going to have problems. If you're going to have any hope of finding the unity of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Ephesians 4.3, you're going to have to avail yourself of the bond of peace. Find what truly makes us followers of Christ. Verses 4-6 through six are a good start there. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Identify those followers of Christ and then love them as much as you can, weird preferences and all. If we can be less concerned about passing judgment on one another's opinions, as Paul mentions in Romans 14.1, we can free ourselves up to actually come together as the body of Christ. It will mean putting up with some things that we'd rather not put up with. But surely that's better than living in God's house alone. This is what I've been playing. Is War the worst game I've ever played? I don't know. It has to be a finalist, though. For the blissfully uninitiated, let me sum up the game in 15 seconds. Two players... One deals an entire 52-card deck of cards into one pile of 26 for each of them. It's boring already, right? Then the players take turns flipping cards over. The player with the highest-ranked card takes both cards and puts them at the bottom of his pile. In case of a tie, you go again. You keep playing until one player has all the cards. That player wins the war. It is 100% luck. If you're dealt three aces, you will almost certainly win. There is no strategy, no plan. What happens, happens. It's fine for kindergartners, I suppose. But Hi-Ho Cherio is pretty close to 100% luck, too. And at least you get a cool spinner to play with, and the actual act of picking cherries out of the tree is satisfying. Aggravation is probably about 90% luck. 
when you spend 10 minutes trying to roll a one to win the game, unable to do anything else at all, aggravation is an appropriate title. But at least there's a smattering of strategy with aggravation. The only blessing with war, and I mean the only blessing, is that it fits in your pocket. If you have a deck of cards, you can play war. It makes me think of Isaiah 2.4. And he will judge between the nations, and he will mediate for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. What a beautiful world, right? Needless to say, Isaiah's famous messianic prophecy has nothing to do with card games. Even so, it's not bad advice. While I'm taking passages out of context, let me do the same for a classic by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Teach your children well. Let them learn hi-ho cheerio. Let them learn aggravation. Don't let them learn war. I'm not a huge fan of games that are entirely strategic either, by the way. Chess, checkers, Othello, Pente, etc. I prefer games that throw a certain amount of randomness at the game player to see how they can use their skills to maximize their opportunities. That's the way life itself works, after all. Randomness is woven into the matrix, and that makes for uneven results. Solomon told us long ago that the race is not always to the swiftest runner. You show your medal by properly utilizing your one, two, or five talents. But back to war. Life is not simply a matter of walking down a predetermined path toward a predetermined end. Starting with a better hand than your neighbor doesn't automatically make you the winner. That would be favoritism. And Acts 10.34 tells us God is no respecter of persons. You have a certain amount of control. You make choices that matter. Your eternal destiny is not left entirely to chance. Wouldn't the opposite of that be a sad way to live? And yet John Calvin and his followers insist that is exactly the way we all live. God has predetermined certain individuals to salvation and others to damnation. It's already written in the mind of God. We're just watching it all pan out. I want to be clear here. I reject Calvinism, but not because it doesn't make sense. There are lots of things in the Bible I can't fully make sense of, but I'm prepared to accept them by faith. I reject Calvinism because the Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. The Bible tells us that entrance into God's eternal kingdom will be supplied to us if we pursue the Christian graces of 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 10. How that fits in with God's foreknowledge and predestination is a topic too big for this space. Suffice it to say for our purposes today that they have to fit in, because the Bible teaches both. Whatever is settled in the mind of God, and however and whenever it became settled there, That does not rob me of my ability to choose a path. I can choose this day whom I will serve, just like Joshua told the people to do in Joshua 24, 15. You can choose too. In fact, you will choose. You don't have to hope against hope that somehow you got the good cards and someone else got the bad cards. God gave you everything you need to find life and godliness. 2 Peter 1, 3 tells us that he gave it to you in Jesus. So accept the cards God hands to you however good or bad you may consider them to be. Play the game to the best of your ability, and then watch as God hands you the victory. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. 
Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.